0: Hey everybody! Welcome to another episode of the Compile Swift Podcast. This is a very special episode. I have Geo Lodi with me today. We are going to be talking about testing, and he has a new book uh, coming out on testing, especially for Swift and Swift UI. That I have been very privileged to take a look at, and I learned so much that we thought we got to get together and talk about this. So, hey, Geo, how you doing? Introduce yourself, please.
1: Hey, Peter, how's it going? Thank you for having me. Uh, hey, everyone, I'm, I'm Gio. I am working as a mobile infrastructure engineer at a company called Automatic. You, not many people have heard of Automatic, but uh, you are very likely to have heard of the products that we work on, such as WordPress.com, Tumblr, WooCommerce, SimpleNote. And um, yeah. As a, as a mobile infrastructure engineer, my... Role is a bit lower level than product development. I myself and the team that I work in, we help teams ship good code on a schedule. And um, part of why I ended up in this position is my long time passion for for testing, and um, and in particular also test driven development, which is uh, well we get to talk about it a lot soon, but it is this way of writing code using the test as the feedback mechanism, not only to um, give you an idea whether or not your code is correct, but really inform the design decisions that you take.
0: For those who don't know, would you like to go ahead and explain what this testing is? I think we'd all like to think that we all do testing and we all say when someone asks, oh, yeah, yeah, I write tests. But, you know, explain for those who genuinely admit i've never done testing so what are we talking about when we talk about software testing
1: okay okay well let's start first principles right um even when someone says uh i've never done testing i I don't know how to do testing i would say uh, you may think you don't know but you actually know how to do it and you've been doing testing for a long time basically since your first uh program that you have written um, many many people start with an hello world so you would write your hello world and then run it and the, the act of running the, the, the code that you wrote and see if it prints hello world on, on your terminal or wherever you are directing the output that is a, a testing self-testing is nothing more than verifying that the the piece of code the software that you have written behaves the way that you expect it to now, the, the hello world example is very straightforward. Let's make it a bit more complex. Let's say that um, you have an optional input parameter to your hello world function. And uh, if you say hello, you run the script hello world and you pass it a name like Peter it's going to say hello, Peter. Otherwise, it's just going to say hello world. Now we have uh, like a, the, the behavior is a bit more involved. So to, to test them. Uh, to manually test rather this um, new iteration of our amazing Hello World program, you'd need to first run it without any argument and then you would run it with like an input like Peter and make sure that the input comes out, right? So see, if you do this manually, you would, just as we said, you run it and then you check it with your eyes and then you run it again, typing Peter, and then you check it with your eyes to see if Peter came out. This works and it might seem like a good approach for a simple program like a Hello World, but uh, it gets way more involved as the your program evolves from like a, an example script to an, an actual application. In particular, when you add, um, maybe you want to modify the behavior of a screen that is uh, three steps down into the navigation hierarchy. So you make your, be- your, your change. You need to spin up the app, tap, tap, tap to go to your screen and check it. And again, you're checking it with your with your eyes. And uh, this is, look, I'm lazy. Uh, this looks like a lot of work to me. So I always think, ah, is there a way that I can shortcut this work? And uh, that is where... Um, automated tests come in. And this is why I say that uh, if you're a software developer, um, even if you've never written a test, you know how to write a test because um, I would say all of our software is not run by us, the users. Actually running the software is run by layers of other software. Like when I press my screen... There is some um, a lot of hardware that translates the the change in um, I think the uh, the let's say magnetic elect- electromagnetic field in the in the screen down to like a um, information that the processor sends through and yada 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 and at some point the OS software receives a call and then the OS software calls my app and my app sends the event down to the view controller or the view screen, you know. So software is already called by other software. And the uh, the jump between, the jump from having the operating system calling your software for you as a result of you touching the screen and uh, you writing another bit, of, another bit of software that calls your software for you is, is very tiny because you already know how to write software.
0: As you were saying that and as you were describing the flow, and i was thinking about you know when i'm writing code and that we we get very focused on our code and we tend to forget the the system part right and i think the when it's when we're looking at writing our tests we also have to remind ourselves that you know the system will do what the system's going to do and there's no guarantee that that's correct but the am i right in thinking that our testing is really looking at it and saying okay i need to make sure that my part is good and if something else goes wrong that's related to the system okay i can't fix that but at least i can identify it wasn't my code does that make yeah. sense is that kind of the the way to look at this
1: yeah i think that's a that's a great perspective and um my attempt to describe what happens when you touch the screen clearly showed <laughs> that uh, uh, there's so much involved and that uh, it's very hard for an individual to know all the components, I certainly don't know how all those hardware levels work. Having Being able to validate that your bit of software works correctly is certainly helpful in then like uh, taking the next step and say, okay, you reduce the surface area in which uh, you then need to continue to research for an issue when when an issue arises. And um, Mm -hmm. it's also useful to know, hey, my software works correctly, maybe you can... This is another kind of test sometimes called, um, it can be referred to as exploratory test or um, um, there's another name for that that escapes me right now. But what I'm trying to say is you can write a test that wraps a, a third party component or like a, some OS feature and, uh, and you verify that like, it behaves in this way that uh, it is not what you expect. But at least you have the test as a written compiling specification of the actual behavior. And then maybe that behavior that you weren't expecting is actually a bug in, in iOS. And you have the test that, that proves it. And um, when a new version of iOS is released, you can run the test automatically and see if they fix the bug. Because if the bug, uh, if they sorry. If the test now passes, for example, then the behavior is what you were expecting and the bugs is, is fixed.
0: That, that's a really good point because I know that when I've been discussing with some developers that I work with and, you know, we talk about testing and, of course, the, the natural reaction for every developer is, oh, you know, I don't want to have to sit. I've written my code and now you want me to write a test to prove my code, but I think that repetition is so important because, like you say, if you find that something, you know, a test that was failing and you know you didn't change any code, but a new OS release came out, it's an indicator that maybe something under the hood there has been fixed. And that's a good point. And I think that also the repetition of these tests and by writing them, I feel there's a real benefit that I can then hand those off. And they go in the code base, you know, in the repository so that my fellow team members can also run those tests. If they have some questions about my code, they can look at the test and maybe that answers it as well. Because, you know, the other thing is, if we all be honest, right, do we fully document our code for the benefit of the other people? Well, yeah, six months from now I will, right? You know, yeah. But also because if the code, what I like about this is if the code changes in some way, be it me or somebody else, and a test that was passing is now failing, to me that also feels kind of like an indicator that that block of code, whatever it may be that I felt was isolated unto itself, clearly isn't because something else has influenced it. And so being able to sit with the team and run those tests and say, huh, there's something going on here. Somebody did a commit that's broken my test. we got to figure out who needs to do the fix here, right? Yeah. Also, when you commit, and that's the other part here, is when you commit and push to the repo, to have something where it can automatically run those, like a test report for you all the time, I would imagine is very beneficial as well
1: yeah absolutely there's there's so much to unpack in, in what you just described um much <laughs> so I don't even know where to start uh let's say um so you touched on the 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 developer who says ha, i spent all this time writing my code and now you want me to to write a test for it too i have uh, um a, a few things to say to this hypothetical developer. I would say <laughs> hey um first of all, if you write a test for your code, it is easier to verify that your test that your code works rather than trying it through the application because um, I'm going to assume that they did try their code through the application to make sure that it worked. So uh, if you write a test, it is going to be more efficient. So like uh, you're going to tell me you are upset because you had to spend more time writing the test. Well, if you had written the test, it would have been easier to, to verify the behavior. So you would have saved time rather than running the app. And then I would take, uh, um, use the opportunity to I- introduce the idea of writing the tests first. So there's this, look, it's a bit of a Stroman argument, but like, uh, I like to make it anyway, which is you can't trust a test that you've never seen fail. Mm-hmm. So say you write your good implementation, and then you write a test for it, and the test passes. Um, most likely, you've written the test properly, and the test is telling you giving you a good judgment on the behavior of your code. But there is a chance, there's always a chance that uh, maybe the test uh, is asserting the, the wrong thing. You are calling the wrong property, and so like the value, uh, the test passes, but the code is, is incorrect. So what you would need to do to really be sure of the quality of your test would be to change the production code to uh, simulate a failure intentionally mm-hmm. and see if, if the test can catch it now this is this is even extra work to give you trust on your test now, if you spin it the other way around, where you first write the test and then write the code that that test is verifying in the first time that you've written the test, but the code isn't there yet, the test is gonna fail for sure, and then if you keep adding little bits of code and the test fails, you verify in real time as you add the code that your test is um trustworthy that is telling you when the code doesn't work uh, the way that you expect it to. So that is, I think, a very uh, a, a good argument for the, the value from a point of view in, of the trust that we have in our test suite for, for writing tests first. And then is a segue in testing and test-driven development in particular as these uh, two phases. One is, yeah, it gives you uh, confidence in uh, the, the quality of your code from the point of view of the um, behavior my code does what I expect it to do. But also the act of writing the test and following the test failures to, to shape the code that you're implementing, that is a great, great advantage in how you can approach the design of the code. Something that I say in the book is a partition problem and solve sequentially. So when you're given a problem, the far, like, starting from the test helps you Apply the this, princi- this principle partition problem and solve sequentially, because you have um, a certain behavior, involved behavior that you want to implement. And you can start by writing a test list, which is nothing but um, the names of the tests that you want to um, that you want to that you want to run. If we go back to our hello world example, it would be um, hello world with no argument prints hello world and a hello world with argument prints hello given argument. And now even just this exercise forces you to dig deeper into the, the specification that you've been given to understand the, what the code is supposed to do. And then from that, you can... You partition the problem, so now there's two behavioural hedges that you want to implement: the one with and without the the input parameter. You can solve sequentially. You start by making the first behaviour work, and you, you get that working. Good. Now the test is passing, and uh, you can take a take a breather and uh, be happy with what you've done. And now move on to 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 the next one. You solve them sequentially, and these. I find is frees up a lot of my mental resources to really focus on one thing at a time, do the thing well and and then move on without trying to uh, being a perfectionist and like uh, doing it good the right time because we all know that, uh, we all should know that uh, the first time is seldom the best one, we need to to iterate on on our software and on our ideas, but still it's hard to let go of that, and you just want to well i'm doing it right, so I want to do it right instead adding this structured approach aided by the the feedback of the test to really move in an iterative way is I, I find it invaluable
0: yeah, I agree, I think you know one of the when as I was working through your book and One of the things it taught me very early on, which I realized that I had been trying to do it, but I was failing because I wasn't thinking about it the right way. And as you say, you know, in your book, you focus on this idea of, you know, break things down into small, you know, chunks of solvable problems and, you know, by all means, make an outline for the bigger picture. But when you're writing the code and when you're writing your specifically your tests to then make you write the code, um, you know, to go in and say, okay, each one should do one thing. And and once you've solved that problem, move on to the next part. And I think it's a good example, like you say, for, you know, a Hello World program where, okay, you know, the first test would be, you know, print Hello World. That's it right? We just call a function that that's what happens. Next test would be that function plus an argument to put a name in, you know, hello, geo, uh, something like that. And that was one of the things that I really, for me, made the testing idea click when I was reading the book. And after working through, you know, sort of the first part of your book, I realized the problem was that I didn't know the right questions to ask when I was writing my test or trying to figure out what the test was. And so, that would naturally lead to me writing code, which did what it was supposed to, but I wasn't really solving the right problem. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, 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 it does. Um, well, thank you for for you know sharing this, this this story with me. It really makes me happy to to hear that uh, the the book helped you. Uh, and um, there's, I, I've been talking about uh, testing for for a long time. Like uh, people that work with me, uh, like ah uh, yeah, he's the the testing fact, the guy, the guy that never stopped talking about testing, and <laughs> it happens. When someone says like, I oh, yeah, sorry, but um, I, I know I should write tests, but I don't do that enough." And I say, "Well, you know, don't, you don't need to be apologetic about it." I something that I try to explain in the in the conclusion of the book is you don't need to do test-driven development to have a good software design because all the principles that test-driven development helps you implement, they are uh, uh, staples of, of good software design. Probably everyone is already familiar with them. The thing that I would just add is test-driven development can help you. Um, it nudges you towards uh, uh, writing code in um, as respect to the single responsibility principle that applies the, the the dependency inversion principle that uses proper proper dependency injection and um, that is composed of small uh, loosely coupled highly co- cohesive uh, elements and components. So it is I'm very passionate about it. it is the way that I like to work. Um, I do think is the the air quote best way but some folks may get really um, have very strong feelings about it and they won't listen like it is is a test development or go home um, I I hope to be to come across less um, less of an extremist and more like uh, yeah it is a uh, practice uh, it really works well for me I apply to most of the code that I write but it is sometimes I uh, might not be the best tool for the job or it might just not click with someone and that's okay too.
0: When people think of testing, they think, oh, well, surely that's something that teams, of you know, more than one developer working on something should be doing for good reasons, but that's not me and I don't have to worry about that. Even if I'm just a solo developer on a project and I know that nobody else is going to touch the code base, writing tests is helping the future me to remember why I did this crazy thing to begin with. Because I think if yeah. we're all honest, we've done it, right? We write something, we ship it. Six months later, we've got to make a change. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, why did I do it this way? Why would I call that thing whatever I called it? Why would I do yeah. this? Why is my function doing four different things? And those tests for myself, help me stay honest to the future me who's sitting there at yeah. two o'clock in the morning and just wants to go to bed. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think uh, um, we don't have enough empathy for our future selves. You know, when you, I not know, when you plan your, your week or like when you are imagining, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that uh, later. Like, yeah, I'm going to be able to do all this stuff and uh, you're just overloading your future self uh, with with, with work uh, and it's the same we uh with code like sometimes uh we may be too confident in the mental capacity of our future self or in our future self uh ability to remember what we were thinking o- on a given day and um, as you say like uh, when you work as a solo developer that is that is really cool because when when you work in uh, in a team like um you can maybe ah, no, it was that other person. I'll blame them. But when you're just by yourself, you got no one else to blame. And if you written code that you can't understand, you know it was you. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. or it was your past self, I, I should say. Um, yeah, yeah. Because you
0: never see like a get blame. It was me, right? I'm blaming myself. <laughs> that never happens, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's very. Um, yeah, humbling to find out. Yeah, uh, you know, look through the git and uh, ah, yeah, I actually made this mistake. So yeah, yeah, yeah I,
0: I, you know, I put my hands in the air and say I've done that, and then I go back and I look and I'm like, okay, I think I see why I did this because I just wanted to get the build to work and go home, but now yeah. I'm looking at it and thinking, boy, I wish I could wind that clock back. You know,
1: so, uh,
0: so there's that. Yeah, something that you know. So moving sort of onto what I found was a key area for me in the book is now that we've got this new world, right? I think, I think of it in two ways. We've got our Swift, which is kind of the business layer and it models and everything else. And then now we've got this Swift UI that Apple has essentially said, look, we're not forcing you to do it now, but you know in the future we're going to tell you to do this. As we're trying to wrap our heads around SwiftUI and, you know, personally, I really like the way that I can build my views, but it is still a mystery to me in many ways how I link my code and my views together. So if you don't mind, you know, you have these chapters in the book where you talk about testing SwiftUI, and I'm really curious what situations and what problems you have found and how you have overcome those. As you look towards automating testing for Swift UI, because this is an area that I've not touched yet. I know I'm going to have to. And I think you're going to save a lot of trouble for a lot of us um, by the way that you have in the book, because it made sense to me. But would you like to talk about that and, and the complications with Swift UI for testing?
1: Yeah, sure. I think uh, um, most iOS developers today have a UI kit background. The, um, the reason there haven't been enough newcomers in the in the industry that started fresh with with SwiftUI. One because the, the framework is still in is very early stages, so um, adopting it e, in version one like it was a bit of a, a bit a bit of a gamble. And also mm-hmm. the constraint that uh, it was um, it depends on the iOS version. So even when you create a brand new app, there's always a case to maybe support the, the previous version of mm-hmm. iOS. And uh, I think that case becomes stronger and stronger. Um, Apple has shown us this year that uh, um, the same devices that support iOS 14 are going to support iOS 15, if I'm not mistaken. So there is a case to think, ah, users might be a bit um, slow to 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 upgrade. Although now that I realize what I've just said, the same devices that support 14 will support 15, so uh, hopefully they will upgrade too, uh, which so let me rephrase. Apple is trying to help users upgrade, but there is still a a good chunk of users that is on an older version of iOS. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Regardless of the rabbit hole in which I dug myself, trying to get (laughs) up. uh, Adopting the new technology straight away is a bit of a gamble, and there are some technical limitations for which you may not want to do it. So to go back again, most of us have this, um, this UI kit background. And uh, UI kit and Swift UI, uh, they work very differently. And uh, trying to uh, apply the same um, uh, patterns and, and techniques and strategies to implement uh, software for UI kit, uh, trying to apply those same strategies to Swift UI uh, doesn't really work because it's a, it's a different paradigm. And uh, it, it took me uh, quite a lot of time to really really grok that and uh, in a sense uh, let go of some of the things that i was used to do with ui kit and say no i don't need to do them in swift ui this is really the the key swift ui makes a lot of things easier just a, a quick I- introduction for everyone that uh, might not have the, the time to try SwiftUI yet or watch the great introduction talks that uh, have been published at WWDC. Um, SwiftUI is this uh, declarative SwiftUI is a framework that you can import and it offers a declarative DSL for for, for to build our views. The the key difference from the UIKit approach or UIKit approach is that in SwiftUI views are a function of the state as opposed to a secret, sequence of events as they were in, in UIKit. So whereas in UIKit you would instantiate an object your um Custom button. Then you will call a bunch of methods on that custom button to to configure it, and you would change its state. In SwiftUI, you build a state um, value type, and you declare in the view how the view should configure itself based on that state. Um, it, you really have to play with it and like uh, make some experiment to to uh, appreciate how it works in the details, but uh, at a higher level. Views are just like um, in the same way that you might have our hello world function and you give it an input. And uh, every time you give it Peter, it's going to say hello, Peter. Every time you give it Geo, it's going to say hello, Geo. That's the same thing in UI. You, you describe your view and every time you give it your input, uh, like button title text uh, equal pizza is always going to render on the screen in the same way. In the past, in, in, the, in UI kit land, I would encourage writing some level of, of uses, using test-streaming development to uh, do some part of the implementation of, of custom views. Or use writing tests at the view controller view layer to make sure that when a certain button was pressed, this certain action was going to happen. This is not necessary anymore in SwiftUI because of the user function of state approach. SwiftUI guarantees you, hey, if you play by the SwiftUI rules and you give me a value type with this state, I'm going to render it the same way all the time. And uh, this is the, the mind-blowing difference that when I crocked it, it really turned the, light, the proverbial light bulb. It was, okay, well then I don't need to write a test for the view configuration. I can simply use Xcode Previews to iterate and, um, and just play around with my layout, with, with how it should look like, how it should render. And uh, once that is done, I can put all my energy into using test-driven development to implement the pure business logic that produces the, the state value type that I feed the view, that I configure the view with.
0: I went into Swift UI thinking to myself, OK, you know, I've spent all these years with Swift and things like that. This is going to be easy because I'm pretty good with Swift. And then the problem became that I was fighting the system because I wanted, you know, I had my preconceived notions, like you say, from UI kit. uh, And then you go into Swift and you're like, okay, well, come on, do that. And it wouldn't do what I wanted. Or it, it seemed like it wasn't doing it. And it's because I was expecting it to do the way I wanted it to happen rather than throwing out what I know and accepting, all right, SwiftUI, you you got this. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And then as soon as, like you say, as soon as you grok that and you realize, oh, yeah, okay, the view, once it's on the screen, it's a static thing, right? And I think the clue we should have been, I should have looked at it and gone, oh, well, the whole thing's built from a struct. That should have been my clue right there. And then once I realized okay, so my view is essentially a static on the screen. If I want it to update, I've got to ch- tell it something else to change. So that SwiftUI then says, oh, got to update the view now. I'm going to rebuild it for you.
1: This is the the unidirectional data flow idea. The, um, as developers, we don't have a way to force a re-render of the view. The only So we don't have a direct way. We only have an indirect way, which is provided with new input. And um, we can do it in in different ways. The the one that I explore in detail in the book is by using uh, an um, observed object. Mm -hmm. So we use the observed object property wrapper to declare that uh, a certain um, observable object that we pass to the view at initialization time is something that. this is amazing as well. Like all the plumbing that uh, the Swift UI and Combine team have implemented for us by default. There is, um, so what observed and observable object do together is every time one of the published at published, um, I should say, one of the properties that are wrapped with the published property wrapper of the observed object. Um, every time one of those updates. Automatically, the view is going to re render. And um, there is so much code under the hood that uh, we would have, have to write to make that happen, or third party frameworks that we would have to pull in to do all the uh, dynamic bindings to make that happen. And uh, now this, this automatically happens through, through SwiftUI and combine and their uh, seamless integration. And it's yeah. very beautiful. And again, as someone that likes writing tests, the less, the least tests I can write, the better, because um, whatever there's code, there's the possibility for a bug. So if I don't have to implement that anymore, first of all, it saves me time, but also it is, there's less chance that I'll make a mistake. So uh, yeah. that's, ju- that's just great. This transition that we're going through reminds me of um the transition we went through from objective c to swift um when um, if i remember correctly when apple introduced swift uh one of their like um, taglines were objective c without the the c and um we at least i i wrote and i saw a lot of apps written as like a one one translations of Objective-C code into, into Swift, uh, sometimes with uh, semicolons at the end, too, this kind of stuff, right? I still put and,
0: semicolons uh, sometimes. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, it, is, it took a while to become familiar with, with the language, with the difference, and with the Swift way to do things. And um, it's a learning uh, progress. We just need to yeah, accept that, is going to take some some effort some some repetition some experiments
0: and 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 some mistakes. Yeah, you're right. And it's interesting that you mention, you know, um, so many times when I, you know, we go looking for things and we find solutions and someone will always say like here's the objective-c version, here's the swift version and you know, sometimes you can tell that they've kind of done a one-for-one you know switch out yeah. which probably works but I think the problem with if you're a new developer or someone who's, you know, sort of going into Swift, and you know, we all copy and paste code. Um, sometimes, a, you know, in particular with Swift, you don't want that one for one conversion because there could be something in the foundation that will do this for you, but it'll be very different code than just a one for one translation of Objective C. <laughs> and so, I think it's important when you know, folks are doing that. Those, this kind of updating of their code, that they go look and see: is is there a better way to do this? You know, and Apple is really good at this year on year, like this year with so many APIs and things like that, um, the async or and all of that kind of stuff. Where it's like, look, you can write less code if you just do it this way, but understand why it's doing it this way, not just put it in because if you have to then change it. You can be in a world of hurt, you know, so yeah, so I think it's important to understand anytime you find a solution from someone, make sure that you know what that solution's doing. Don't just put it in and great, it's fantastic, move on, especially if you're writing tests because how are you going to test code that you have no idea what it means right
1: Yeah, there's there's something to dig into which is can't back. He is the, the, the person that introduced the idea of test-driven development, although if you were to ask him, he would say that he rediscovered it from a paper that he read at some point that was mentioning that uh, back in the magnetic tape programming days, so uh, a long time ago, they would um, write the tape the way they, they, they assumed the output, they expected the output to be, and then code their way until the output that they produced matched that oh, tape. interesting. And uh, which is, again, it is the idea behind test-driven development. I write the test that is going to pass when the code does what I want it to do, and then I write the code that makes uh, the test pass. Um, so K- Kent Beck has this this saying, which is make it work, make it right, make it fast. And uh, it, it, it it ties very well with test-driven development because once you have your test and you made it pass, you can play with the code. You can iterate on the code. You can change the code as much as you want and quickly uh, get a feedback whether your change was uh, left the code correct through the test. If you run the test and they're still green, then then your code is fine. And this is actually the the test-driven development mantra, the test-driven development flow, red, a test that doesn't work, a, a test that fails, green. a test that now passes because you build the code that makes it pass, and then refactor. Reshape the code, change. The word refactor or the verb to refactor means to change the factor of the code. That is, change the way the code is um, shaped, the way it looks, without changing the behavior. That's exactly what the test allows us to do because the test ideally should really focus on on the behavior of the code, not his implementation. So, if we change the the implementation and the test is still green, it means that the behavior it, it is still correct. So, it is fine if you you write your test and it's failing, and you need to make it pass and you don't know how, you may find some code on Stack Overflow and then paste it and uh, now the test is passing. Great, uh, pat yourself in the back because you made the test pass and now you can take a deep breath and shift your mind from, okay, I need to make the test pass to I need to make the code right from making it work to, to making it right and you can um, um, change it uh, in the going back on the... It's a bit old by now, but anyway, because hopefully few people copy code from Objective C and just want one translated into Swift. By now, yeah. most of the examples online are into Swift. But anyway, you have some Swift code that is not uh, Swifty. I uh, know maybe it is using any instead of a certain type. It's mm-hmm. not leveraging the type system. Uh, you can then. Um, reshape that code to be more in line with the um, better leverage the tools that Swift offers us and um, just quickly iterate on that and experiment because you have the test that give you these uh, these safety nets and again you can do all that without test uh, by running the app and verifying it manually or like by being your own Test runner and just looking at the code and trusting that that is working in Mm -hmm. the mental representation that you have. Um, I don't trust myself to do that. (laughs) I'd rather have 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 the test do that for me.
0: Yeah, me too. It's it's funny because um, I've had this conversation with with some folks where you know they would have a problem with something and they were trying to figure out, and so we'd look at it and then we'd have some ideas. They'd go away and try it. And then they'd come back and it'd be working. They'd be like, great, we solved it. And then, um, you know, they, they send it off to code review and and it goes in and somebody else passes it. And then I see the emails come in from like Jira and things like that. And it's like, oh, OK, I've got, I'm, I'm curious, really curious to see what their solution was. And then you go look and I see, like you say, they're like, well, they just typed it to any. And there's like a huge red flag of like, no, that's just kind of like driving around the problem. Because now you've introduced this thing of, well, it'll take anything, but you know that that's not the truth, you know? But all you've done is say, hey, compiler, stop telling me there's a problem here, right? And then, you know, when sometimes you have that conversation, it's like, look, you know this is going to come back and bite you later on, so take the five minutes and fix it properly. You know, don't just get it through the code review, right? Um. Absolutely. And uh,
1: you, you, the thing about like, yeah, using any or like uh, force unwrapping. Um, again, the, the, the test-driven development mindset is not really about writing tests, but like finding ways to get fast feedback and uh, finding automated way to help you do the right thing. So if when you specialize your type from... Um, any to to string or whatever to int whatever type you actually is the only one that you need. You are moving the the test the the check for the correctness of the input from the 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 runtime to the type system. Um, the, there's um an example I made in the book which is uh, in, the, in the context of networking, but in the context of any kind of um, operation that uh, may succeed or fail, and let's imagine you have a callback, uh, the, the old way of doing that in the Objective-C days was you would have a like a parameter with the success value that it, you might have gotten and a parameter with the with the error. And uh, then in the code, you would check, okay, if uh, I don't have an error, but I have a value, then it was successful. If I don't have a value, but I have an error, then it fails. And then you had this awkward case in which you didn't have, you could have run code that had no value and no error or a value and an error. And um, you would have to write uh, in your implementation something to handle it somehow, right? And uh, if you if you apply test-driven development, you would have likely written a test for that as well, because you want okay, in this behavior, I I it defaults to a value to a default value or something. With Swift, uh, with the with the strong type type system, and in particular with the enum type, you can describe this uh, mutually exclusive exclusive state using using an enum. You can have a enum case uh, success with associated value that the the um, the value of your success, the type of your success, and, and the case error that takes an error. And in fact, uh, the Swift standard library has a type for that. It's called result. It's one of my favorite types of all the Swift uh, standard library. And um, this shifts the code, the check, the test from your code to the, to the type system level, because now it is impossible that uh, you get uh, both a value and an error, because the compiler is not going to let you do it. Mm. And uh, that is that is very very beautiful, and it saves you time because now you don't have to think about that anymore. You don't have to write that anymore.
0: As much as I know, and, and this is kind of a personal choice that I made, I know that I can mostly trust the type inference system to work for me. But I'll be honest, most of the time, I try to make sure that I you know assign the types myself, so that when I'm going through. You know, it's not that I'm saying the system's going to get it wrong, but it's so much easier for me when I'm doing other coding and things like that that it's like, okay, I set this to be a a string, and I know that that's what it's going to be. And if it's not, my code is expecting it to be a string. So, like you say, I can write a test that says, "Hey, if this isn't a string, then you know, test fail, right?" Um, Whereas there's every chance that the inference system will get it right for me, but there's also that slim possibility that it might not. And by me forcing the issue, uh, you know, in my code, then I'm okay because I am going to be either right or wrong. So I'm curious, do you have any thoughts or do you have a preference? Do you trust the inference system or do you prefer to put your own types so that you know code is doing what you think it should be and the compiler thinks it should be as well?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I think there's definitely an argument to be made for um, being explicit about the types. Um, I think that in your example would have been like let value, colon, string, equal, whatever the values come from, like a clear specify, hey, uh, I expect this to be a string. Um, I, again, maybe maybe i'm lazy i just uh, uh fall back to the least amount of code that that, that i can write i do know uh, that um uh, i don't have any data to to back this up but my understanding of the the compiler and the type inference is that uh, there are certain instances in which uh, type inference be, may become like um time-sensitive, time-consuming, because you have a, a particularly uh, complicated, convoluted uh, type structure. So the compiler takes a lot of time to, to just infer the actual type that uh, this big blob of assignments and chaining and, and operation will result into. And uh, in that case, it is useful to really be explicit about it so that you help the compiler. You help the compiler help you because if you say that uh, you're expecting uh, this uh, string and you have this big complex sequence of uh, functional transformation of your like uh, uh, the value that you are syncing from the publisher, the the type that comes out of this big transformation is not a string. The compiler is is gonna tell you. Whereas you might, uh, if you aren't um, ex- um, explicitly declaring it, you would have to you would learn it later on in your code like uh, you were setting a string and you got I don't know an array of strings instead so um, there's there's a case to me I I tend to just uh, um, fall back to the getting the compiler to help me
0: okay yeah no I mean there's certainly nothing wrong with you know the line if I, the line of code that I don't write won't go wrong I, you're absolutely right you know and I think that you know that's why it's also like we were saying earlier about You know, look in foundation. There's probably a solution for at least part of your problem so that you don't have to write the code and, you know, do some of that, you know, reinventing at the wheel. I I think you're right.
1: I find that, that like, uh, yeah, go look uh, in in foundation. Go look at the docs. I find that, like, uh, yep, every time I... Most of the times I look into the documentation, I find something that I didn't know and surprised me and, and helps me do what I was trying to do. The hard part is not really the finding the solution, is remembering to to go look for for, for a solution into the documentation is, uh, at least for me, is an habit that, uh, I don't know, I need to put more reps into it to develop that um, um automatic reaction. Huh, I don't know about this. Let me let me search the docs instead of just uh, trying to code my way out of it by myself. And the, the test driven development way to do this would be uh, so you have your test, you're trying to to make it pass and uh, it's taking you a long time to to make your test pass and uh, this is in itself is one of the many different type of feedbacks feedback that uh, the tests can give you It's like huh. Mm-hmm. You should be able to move in small iteration, in quick iteration. Okay, I'm, I have the test, I make it pass, and then I refactor, and then I make a change, and the test is red now, and then I make it green. And if it's taking you a, a long time, you start to become uncomfortable. And that is a sign that, oh, maybe I need to take a step back and look at... Um, the design that I'm trying to, to achieve here, or like maybe there is the time to go look for a solution online, look at the documentation. Maybe I don't have the tools to, to do what I'm trying to achieve right now and I need to learn something new. So that is another form of feedback. is like, ah, huh, you should be able to move through the red-green refactor uh, flow smoothly. And uh, if that's not the case, then, um, yeah, take a step back.
0: I'm I'm really thankful that so many people like yourselves, like yourself, are you know standing up and saying, "Look, testing is important for these reasons." Right? It's it's easy to dismiss testing as not necessary, but it's only really maybe not necessary for the next two minutes of the code's life. But then after that, it's super important because you don't have a record of the ifs, whats, and why you did these things. A test, I, I guess, is it fair to say a test is kind of documenting the code in some ways without writing the documentation for it?
1: So Absolutely. Um, a test is, a, a, I, I see them as a living documentation of the developer's mental representation of what the code does. And um, I wrote a, a post about it. There's um, nothing more insightful than when... Uh, a test that you expect uh, is going to pass fails. like, oh, that's funny. I wasn't expecting that. And that is an occasion for you to refine your understanding uh, of, of the system. In fact, I would recommend when um, when you practice test driven development, try to always guess what the tests are going to do before running them.
0: Oh, I like that. Because
1: um, so that if they don't do what you expect them, then there is an an asymmetry between uh, your mental representation of that bit of code or the system of like what you're working on and uh, and the test. It could be, there was a typo, it could be, um, you know, you you forgot a bit, or it could be a a bug that you discover, or it could be that uh, the code is written perfectly. It was just, you didn't know uh, how it was supposed to behave. This happens a lot when working in other people's code. Expected it to do something, but it, it doesn't. And the, the code is actually doing what it's supposed to according to the, the spec and the, the history of the of the project. You know, like it, it is correct. You were on the wrong, assuming that it was going to do something different.
0: That That's a really good point and a really good tip because that, that instant kind of, you know, red flag of, well, I, you know, I expected this to pass because I wrote this code that would pass it. And then it doesn't is either one of two things, I guess, right? Either one, I wrote the test wrong, which seems less likely than the code that I expected to do something didn't. And it's just pointed out to me now before I hit the run button, built it, compiled it, run it on a device, and it blew up my application because this test is saying, hey, you may think it's going to do this, but that's not what's going to happen and that that's a really good point right there. You know, I think, you know, the takeaway here has to be write the tests, trust the tests. You know, they're not a hundred percent of the solution, but I'm I'm thinking of a test as being, you know, that extra developer looking over your shoulder and saying, Are you sure? You know, uh, do you really want to do it that way? You know, or that's never gonna work. So so that's a a good point.
1: So some, people, some people refer to um, the, the testy to an extent, but in particular, the compiler is like a, a silent pair that is doing pair programming with you all the time and uh, they're never wrong or like they're 99.9999 times uh, correct. Uh, so like, uh, yeah, there's some, um, you uh, wanted to do that but that
0: is not going to work. Yeah. And
1: uh, even if you try to do the, if the compiler said that it's not going to work, it ain't.
0: All right, Gio, thank you so much for joining us today. Please, please, please tell everybody where they can find the book. Give us some details on the book. And where they can find you to reach out uh, if they want to have a conversation with you, uh, please go ahead.
1: You can find more about the book at uh, tddinswift.com. That's uh, T-D-D-I-N-S-W-I-F-T dot com. Uh, The book uh, should be out on the 23rd of June in uh, the print version. That might depend on where you live because of um, shipping and uh, coordination abroad. The the ebook version should be out on the 3rd of July. I'm not sure why they don't come out in sync. The publisher has a reason for that, but uh, I haven't dug into it. But like it's it going to be out soon. Uh, if you go on the website, tddinswift.com, you'll find um, a sign-up form where you can sign up to, to learn more about it. And uh, I haven't put them up yet, but I am going to send some insights and some articles through that list, so some, some bonus content to, you know, like uh, uh, share some useful information about testing and, and TDD. You can find more about me at uh, geo.codes, G-I-O.codes. Uh, in that page, there's all the links to my other personas on, on the internet. Or if you want to get in touch real quick, you can find me on Twitter at uh, geo That's m-o-k-a-g-i-o. And um, I mentioned that I work for Automatic. Uh We are actually hiring. So if anyone wants to work on the products such as WordPress.com, Tumblr, and all those other mobile applications that we work on and uh, they're keen on working in a distributed company that is really puts a lot of emphasis on being inclusive and having a good work-life balance, uh, yeah, get in touch and I'll tell you more about it.
0: And we will put links in the show notes for all of these So, Gio, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time today. And, you know, very excited to see the book come out. Wish you all the best with it.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me, Peter. Thank you for your kind words.
0: And thank you to everyone who has been listening to this. So I hope this episode has been helpful. If it has, please follow, tell friends about it, subscribe. I would greatly appreciate that. And if you want to, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash P-W-C-O-M. And just say thank you there by buying me a coffee because I really love my coffee. Take care. I will speak to you in the next episode.